This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Hello and welcome back to All The Small Things. Venetia here. And if you are new here, welcome. Let me tell you a little bit about the series so far. This podcast is all about the small things, the small moments, routines, habits, rituals, moments that we thought were small but actually ended up being life-changing. There's a lot in it and we kick-started the season with the incredible, iconic, pop songstress Rina Sawayama who has recently been nominated for a Brit Award which she so deserves. She changed the policy and you can learn more about that in the interview in episode two i chatted to lovey ajayi jones who is just the most inspirational speaker and author we talked a lot about fear overcoming fear and being too political in inverted commas and last week i chatted to galong tupton who is a buddhist monk and we spoke about all things meditation mindfulness compassion community there is a lot in there so it's just a pleasure to be bringing this show to you and this week i am so delighted to be joined by Pandora Sykes. Pandora is a writer, journalist and broadcaster and I would be very surprised if you weren't yet familiar with her excellent podcasting work. She co-created The Hilo which is one of the most loved podcasts out there and she's also the host of Doing It Right and The Missing. Last year Pandora released her debut book, an essay collection titled How Do We Know We're Doing It Right? where she interrogates the stories we've been sold and the ones we tell ourselves, exploring themes including wellness, faster than fast fashion, millennial burnout, and the rise of cancel culture. If you know me, you know how much I love all of those topics, so needless to say, I couldn't put the book down. I absolutely loved it. In this conversation, we talk about routines, deadlines, mental health, social media boundaries, decision fatigue, fashion, trends, and style. I adored chatting to Pandora, and I really hope you enjoy this episode. And if you too are someone who color codes their books, well, we are in this together, my friend. So Pandora, thank you so much for joining me on All the Small Things. Let us start as we always do. Do you have some kind of morning routine? How do you wake up in the morning? What's the first thing you do? I sort of have a morning routine, but it depends how I've slept the night before. I get insomnia quite a lot. So if I've had a good night's sleep, then the routine will flow. If I haven't slept very well, then it's all a bit all over the place. But I would say, and this is so boring, this is not going to set anyone's world on fire, but it would be get up, get the children up, give them some toast, make a cup of coffee. Sometimes if I remember, use my roller for my back, you know, where you like roll over it and it sort of cracks. Trying is to do that, that. A, fo- a foam roller type thing? It's a foam roller. I get a really sore back and apparently this is meant to be really good. So I'm trying to um, roll out my fascia. I don't even know if that's how you pronounce it. <laughs> 
Nice. F- I know it is fascia, but fascia is oh more God, actually like it. how it's, and it's apparently it's like the web that connects our entire body. I'm quite fascinated by f- the fascia actually. So it's definitely the fascia. I don't think I'd ever <laughs> tried to say that word out loud. Um, yes. And I think it's definitely the answer to less back pain, that and lots of boring exercises, which I never do. So I've only got myself to blame. I, I, I really like a, a foam roller and the way that feels. I am wondering, are you the kind of person, and I think you might be, who enjoys structure? Uh, or are you someone who quite enjoys things feeling quite chaotic and you just manage to get things done no matter the situation? I do like structure, but I also have a tendency to uh, take on lots not in like a martyr way but there's lots of things I'm interested in and I get distracted by things so it ends up being chaotic so it's sort of a chaos within a structure that sounds good that sounds that sounds like very workable um and I'm also wondering obviously you are a mother you've got two children has I remember growing up routine and structure was just such a big part of my life and I have a one-year-old niece as well and routine is everything and I'm wondering if your kind of relationship to how you view time and structure and schedule has changed since having children especially as you're super busy with lots of different projects happening all the time like how has having children affected how you view time and structure? I think what it made me realize is that you before I had children, it was just, if I wanted to do something, I just had to make extra hours. I just had to carve them out where maybe they didn't exist before. So very early in the morning or very late at night. And then what having children meant is I just didn't have those hours to play with. And I could work very late at night, but I would just feel horrendous. So I think it's been quite an interesting harnessing of my time, because even if I have those hours, I'm just not able to fill them all to max capacity or I'd be a bit of a rubbish mum. So it's kind of finding those hours where like before the working day when you're with kids and then, you know, bath time, bedtime. So between like 6 and 7.30 every night, there's that routine with kids. So you don't have that hour and a half to maybe unwind from work before you have dinner. You sort of breakneck from work to doing the bedtime routine to making dinner. And I find that you have to switch between gears very quickly, which can feel quite jarring. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd say that that's kind of an overriding feeling as a, a mum with young kids and also working, is it feeling quite jarring? There's not that time to ease in and ease out. And that's still something I'm getting my head around. I slightly wonder if you always are getting your head around that because everything I read and everyone I speak to with older kids still seems to find themselves desperately clicking into new identities. I'm not sure if it ever comes completely seamlessly. That's really interesting. I am also wondering if you are a deadline worker or you're someone who kind of yeah, works up to the deadline because obviously you're a writer and deadlines are such a big part of journalism and book writing and that kind of thing. So are you someone who literally is working up to the last moment with a deadline or are you someone who hands in things pretty early, pretty ahead of time? Are you quite organized in that way? Or do you just love that love that deadline that kind of keeps you in check? 
I'm definitely not someone who is really like galvanized by an imminent deadline. It actually like fills me with dread and it means I won't sleep the night before. But I have become someone that files close to deadline just because I don't ever seem to anticipate how long things will take. Things always take longer than I think. I think that maybe I'm slower at working than I think. Um, I'm definitely a bit of a perfectionist. And I just never leave enough time to do anything. That's been something I've been really trying to work out in the last few years is like leaving space for working out how long a piece takes, but then not factoring in that in that time, you might get a phone call, need to go to the loo, make a sandwich, like all those little things that just add up to meaning that you can't necessarily just like back to back get stuff done. So I have become more of a deadline person, but that's just because of small failures on my part leading up to it. Do you procrastinate, do you think? Yes, I do. It depends what it is. So if it's something that I don't find too intimidating, then I'm able to get it done. My book, I found really difficult to write and really daunting and really terrifying so that I procrastinated and I don't know if it's writer's block um although I do believe a bit more now and sometimes you need to just stare at a wall for seven days doing the as it would be called now the creative deep work in order to get yourself into the zone or whether it's not just I need like a certain amount of fear before I dive in I hate that time I find it really stressful just feeling completely inert so it completely depends what it is um generally podcasting and interviewing people and writing journalism isn't something I would procrastinate too much about um book definitely and I'm sure other things that really terrify me which is obviously necessary uh but that probably means a lot of procrastination and also when you work from home there's always something you can do. You can put on a load of laundry. I love titivating my trinkets, so I'll just rearrange things on shelves. I do a lot of colour coding my books, which is apparently the first sign of psychopathy, sociopathy, one of them. I'm literally staring out at um, a, col- a colour-coded bookshelf, so <laughs> glad, glad we're in the same boat with that one. <laughs> I know, I don't know where I read that, actually. And why, why does it mean that? Is it just if you're tidy? I mean, I just think it adds a nice kind of structure to the room. So here's a question for you. I remember reading something. Actually, it's kind of quite a general idea, isn't it? That um, if you're creative, then you live in chaos. Like creativity is born of chaos. Whereas I find it really hard actually to have any creative thoughts if there are like piles of books around me and loads of coffee cups all over my desk. Yeah, I feel the same. I, I feel also feel five times more calm if my space is tidy. And sometimes I'll, I'll feel anxious and I don't know why. And then I tidy my space and I'm like, oh, that's why. I remember a saying from when I was a child and I really don't know where it came from. And it's so um, twee, but uh, tidy desk, tidy mind. Honestly, I I think it's true. I love it. I love how twee it is. I'd like to um, wind back the clocks a little bit because, and I'd like to talk about when I first discovered you and your work. Um, I was reading the Sunday Times Style Magazine. It must have been 
probably about five years ago now. And I found your piece titled High Anxiety, which is when you spoke really openly about mental health and anxiety. And this was before people were speaking about mental health, perhaps as openly as they do now. And it just had such a profound impact on me. And I was very, very grateful for it. And you wrote in the article, I'm doing that awkward thing of quoting you back to you. This might happen more than once in this interview. Um, For as long as I could remember, I have lived within this framework of angst. And I, yeah, I just hadn't, I hadn't read enough about anxiety at the time, perhaps. And I'd never read someone write about anxiety in that way that I found so relatable. So First of all, thank you for writing that article. And secondly, I'm wondering if there are any habits, big or small, that have helped you cope with anxiety over the years. It is incredible how much that conversation's changed in five years, isn't it? It's almost become, and this is a whole different conversation, but it's almost become trendy now to um, talk about mental health. Um but when I wrote it, I can't remember why I decided to wrote, write it. And it was quite interesting, I think, because, um, not the piece, it was interesting writing the piece, because when I filed it to my editor, she was just so surprised that I felt like that because I'm quite a loud person and I come across as quite confident. And of course, that doesn't mean you can't get anxiety. But as you say, even five years ago, I think we thought that... Um, anxiety was maybe tied to people with a certain personality type. I would say that I've spent a lot of time since I had children trying to work on that because either hormonally or just because you're so exhausted that it makes everything more present and my anxiety is quite tied to my insomnia, it kind of presented itself in a way where it was I think really mandatory for me to get a handle on it or I wouldn't be the kind of mother that I wanted to be and also I wouldn't be the kind of friend I wanted to be because we all know that when you're not in a good place in your mind you just are not available emotionally or psychologically for other people and I like to be and I like to enjoy the world and I know that sounds really trite but I'm not a cynical person Um, but definitely I found that uh, my anxiety was making it very hard to move through the world, I suppose, for want of a better word, even though I have such a fortunate set of circumstances, which is, again, something I couldn't get my head around. I didn't know why small things were causing me so much angst, although I think that can be quite common with anxiety, that you can be someone that's quite good at dealing with big stuff, which I am, but then completely falls apart over really tiny stuff. But in terms of things that I found helpful going forward, I mean, you know, I'm really lucky to be able to say this. I know it's something that people have heard a lot, but for me, it was actually medication and therapy because I had several instances after I had both of my children quite close together where it was definitely sort of insurmountable for me to figure out on my own. But putting those aside in terms of kind of daily routine, It sounds quite strict from the outside. The irony is that it brings such reward to me that it actually doesn't feel like it's strict at all. But I don't use social media typically that much, although actually I've been using it loads in the last month in that I've been checking it every day on my computer. And I think I need to go back to what I was doing before for a couple of years, which was checking it once a week and having like designated time just because I realized that having lots of voices in my head made me feel more um, buzzy, basically. Lots of buzzy voices, buzzy inside my head. So checking that uh, less 
and putting my phone to bed at like 7 p.m., often having it off at a weekend, which does mean stuff like you have to have a partner who's got a phone on, particularly when you have kids, and um, get a landline possibly, which I do have. Um, And other things like... (sighs) not watching telly too much in the evenings, you know, having a whole sort of wind down routine. I should drink less coffee. I've been drinking quite a lot of coffee recently just because um, there's not much else to do. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like a nice coffee with oat milk is, you know, quite a jazzy thing in the day at the moment. So it is all those really boring things. And I think in the past people have said, oh, you know, that means you're so disciplined and you know, that cannot look like a great thing. It can look like a smug thing, but the alternative is not one that I really want to entertain too much. So it's quite a simple decision, decisions for me. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think it's all about treating yourself as a kind of experiment and a laboratory and figuring it out, figuring out what works for you and if it works for you then I don't think anyone else should be judgmental about that because it's you know you're doing what you need to do in order to be a good mother friend all of those things so yeah thank you for sharing that with me I really appreciate it there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, You can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. I would love to talk about your book, How Do We Know We're Doing It Right? It is a collection of essays. I absolutely adored it. Um, And I've recently reread it ahead of this interview. And there's just so much in there. Um, So much research, so much thought. Um, And what I love about it is that it's categorically not a self-help book. It doesn't offer answers. (laughs) Yeah, you're looking, you're just looking to kind of ask questions, which I just think is so refreshing. And you kind of contemplate the endless possibilities that millennials have, which often results in a feeling of restlessness, which I think is something that we millennials uh, really, really feel. So why, Pandora, are we so afraid of getting it wrong? The not having answers thing is really interesting, actually, because some people have found it um, frustrating or a bit obvious. Like, of course, there's not an answer. Um, and it does sound obvious, but it's not so obvious that we're doing it. And 
I do think the moment you start looking at things from a questioning point of view, um, it could be really freeing to ask the questions in order to understand life or to see the life you want to leave rather than to look for the answers. Um, as for doing it wrong, I mean, I suppose it's a bit less literal than that because lots of people would say, oh God, I don't care what's right or wrong. You know, I'm not 15 anymore, which I, I get. I don't think it's necessarily as conscious as that. But I think the paradox of choice is definitely a key part of it, that having no choice is unbearable, but having too much choice is not always a positive thing. And that is a psychological theory from a psychologist called Barry Schwartz, who developed that in 2005. But it's gone on to inform quite a lot of other theories, like decision fatigue is something that we read about quite a lot. And I think what it means is when you're confronted by, and shock horror, I do think the internet and social media plays a large part in this, but when you're confronted by the visibility of how so many other people lead their lives, then it subconsciously makes you question the way that you're leading yours. And even if you're someone that's quite impervious to um, what everyone else is doing to kind of popular trends, it still adds like a layer of anxiety to decisions. So even if you don't use social media, even if you don't follow celebrity culture, if you've ever gone into a shop and been torn between 10 different black dresses, or if you've ever gone into the supermarket and wondered which of the 10 body washes or 20, how many body washes are there? I'm not very good on beauty, but they're so, I, I find beauty, as someone that doesn't really understand beauty, I find beauty incredibly overwhelming. Anyway, side point. Then it can make you feel like these decisions take up, they just take up more space than they need to. And I also think that that's actually politically quite dangerous because if we're spending so much time on the tiny decisions, we're not thinking and talking about the bigger ones mm -hmm. as much. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really, really, that's really interesting. Um, and I think you're right. I, I relate that to fashion. Like when you were talking about that, my instant kind of thought was um, when it comes to sustainable fashion and learning about uh, learning about it, we're so focused on, oh my gosh, which sustainable brands should I be buying from? Which are the best ones? Which ones are truly ethical? And actually the more important question is, why is the system broken? What can we do to change the system? That's that was my that's how I relate it to kind of fit my life. So I'm sure lots of people listening have done the same with their things. No, I agree with that. And that was kind of part of the reason I wanted to write that essay, Get the Look. I wasn't really wanting to write about how we solve the fast fashion or faster than fashion as I called it kind of industry, because also I don't know enough about sustainability and um the lawmaking that would be needed around practices to make fashion ethical, which as we know is just such an enormous ambition anyway. But I was really interested at looking at the psychological reasons to how we'd got to a place where we shopped so much or where we felt compelled to shop so much. And I think a lot of that as well comes back to the idea of a value system. You know, the cheaper clothes get the more capacity you have to buy more of them. Whereas 50 years ago, that it was just, there was obviously not the production, but there also wasn't 
the value meant that unless you were incredibly rich, you you just didn't have that as an option. Whereas now you have that option of buying so many things at the same time. And the other thing, I mean, I know that you're all about myth busting and your work, which I love because I think sustainability is really overwhelming to people. And it makes me quite cross when people damn people for shopping on the high street. Um, you know, Mango and Zara are there. They're affordable. They make really stylish clothes. I, I think damning someone for shopping there is not the right way to look at it. What I think, as you often say, we should be doing is shopping less and shopping from our own wardrobes more as a starting point. Yes, these businesses have uh, lots of huge issues within them, but telling people not to shop on the high street is where I think people feel so overwhelmed. They think, well, I've just got to step out of the sustainability conversation completely because I don't have the access or the money to spend at sustainability brands, which are often not that fashionable. That's the other slightly difficult thing. They're often a bit niche. Anyway, I've gone completely off topic here. But I did want to look at um, how we'd got to that point. And again, it's like what the fact that fashion had become something that's so all-encompassing, that's literally in the ether now. It used to be that you were like into fashion, so you liked shopping, but lots of people weren't. Whereas now it's kind of impossible for people to avoid shopping. And I am completely complicit in that, or I was at least when I was, probably am still, you know, I'm still part of that. But when I was a fashion editor and I loved that job, but that was definitely something that I felt really nervous about because the whole point of a consumer magazine is to make you consume. So you have to make things sound like they're must-haves. But what what do we do with that when we're trying to encourage people to not see things as must-haves? It's a really difficult, I think it's really hard for fashion magazines to try and solve that one. Yeah, I don't know how much how much you kind of pay attention to that side of side of things now that you're doing less work in fashion. But I have noticed some magazines do it quite successfully or make some kind of really important steps where they're, you know, when they dress celebrities for shoots, they're using clothes that they've rented or they're kind of making it more about kind of capsule wardrobes and pieces that will last a really long time. There are definitely um, attempts, I agree. And then you've got columns like um, Jess Cartner Morley's in The Guardian where she wears vintage clothes and some of her own clothes. The problem of that, of course, is that the readers always want to buy what you're wearing and they find it quite annoying when they can't buy what you're wearing from a magazine. Although they can't ever buy the stuff from the high fashion shoots, which the celebrity's wearing. So in that sense, that's not um, anything new. I'm actually a bit sceptical of rental personally, just because, again, it's just from the psychological point of view, not the ethical point of view. I worry that it's still encouraging us to have newness all the time. Um, and whilst, of course, it's better to rent something than to own it, I think it's more, not to sound too Marie Kondo, but it's more about fostering like long-term relationships with things than instant ones, which is something the rental economy definitely encourages. Again, I'm not saying there's like easy answers here. Unfortunately, there aren't really easy answers to anything, which I know sounds probably quite unsatisfying, but that's something that I actually think is more interesting. You have quite a strong sense of personal style. And I think when you you talk about in the book, how when you were writing um, your column 
wardrobe mistress I love how you said like it sounds pretty kinky I was like I'd never thought about that yeah it does sound pretty kinky um you people were kind of you were kind of surprised that people were worrying so much about what they should and shouldn't wear and I think that's to me that's because you've got quite a strong sense of your personal style for people who love trends and find it very difficult not to buy into trends how do you kind of work your way around that or do you find yourself sometimes just thinking oh my gosh I love that trendy whatever it is I'm gonna buy it I don't like screw it I definitely think as you say that me being able to say oh why is someone worrying about what they're wearing or whether or not they look cool comes from that fortunate position of always having a strong idea of what I like and being quite a creative person so I don't struggle with that but definitely people who aren't particularly uh interested in clothes will feel that feeling of like oh god I don't know where to start and am I gonna look really out of fashion and I just hate that it makes people feel like that but of of course it does you know the 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 kind of consumer fashion industry is bought on making you feel like you're not enough um as most consumer industries are in terms of trends yeah that's definitely something that I've tried to um examine since I left my job as a fashion journalist that was a little bit over four years ago and one of the things I really wanted to try and do is figure out the difference between style and fashion uh I love the former I didn't think I needed to be as invested in the latter now that it wasn't my day job so it's just quite a lot of interrogation I think like when I see something and I think oh I want that I just try and think now do I want that because this person who always looks great is wearing it and I've subliminally seen it in 10 different magazines, or do I want it because it will look good on me? And the examining of that sometimes can put me off, which is quite effective. For example, loads of really great looking people wear New Balance trainers, but I know I would not gravitate towards those New Balance trainers if I hadn't seen great people wearing them. So even though I get the urge, I'm like, no, but that doesn't mean that I always resist it. But I, I try and buy a lot of vintage clothing just because it's more affordable. You get something unique. It's better for the environment. There's a lot of different reasons. But I also try and do it to keep myself rooted in style rather than fashion. But, you know, it is subliminal. I'm sure that I'm also quite a lot of the time shopping for something vintage because I've seen the designer version of it. And that is part of the trends. Did you feel quite liberated when you stopped writing about fashion? and moved into talking more about pop culture and current affairs? I loved writing about clothes and I still occasionally do it. I think what was difficult at the time is that I've always bought and worn a lot of vintage, but there's not really the space to do that um, at the moment. And definitely there wasn't in my column. So I felt like I wasn't able to represent that side, which I found a bit sad. I think you are able to represent that side more now. I'm sure it would be different if I was uh, doing it now. Um, Sometimes I do still find the urge to write about it. And definitely I found myself really missing doing creative stuff at the moment. So I think the slightly sad truth is that when you are writing predominantly about fashion, um, it doesn't necessarily allow you to stray into other areas as much. And because it's the dominant force. And there is still a lot of snobbery and misogyny about it, which is sad. Um, I never meant to go into fashion and I really enjoyed the four or five years I wrote about fashion. But then in the four years since, I think maybe I found uh, 
a, a kind of happier place for me. But the funny thing is, is that even though for half my career now, I haven't written about fashion, still when someone doesn't like what I do, they will say the former fashion editor um, rather than what I do currently now. So I think sadly it is definitely still a diminishing label. Um, I wouldn't say that's totally why I stopped writing about it because I'd hate, I'd kind of hate to think that I had let other people decide um, how I wanted to be seen. Um, but I think I just had yearnings elsewhere and maybe in the future they'll that will creep back in a little bit, but I've definitely been more, I've always been more interested by what I'm doing now. I just was offered job, you know, after two years of interning back to back and I was lucky they were paid internships and they weren't in fashion, actually they were in features, but the jobs I were offered were fashion ones. So, Mm. you know, I wasn't going to say no to that, but I don't, it wasn't intentional. And then, um, which again will sound really daft because I had a blog and I used Instagram and I had a column, but I think that's more just because I sort of throw myself into anything that I'm doing at that given time. Reading your book, I just found it, like I found myself laughing to myself because the first chapter was on wellness, which is something that I just completely fell for. And then the second chapter was on fashion, which is obviously something that I was really, I'm really, really passionate about. So I was like, oh my gosh, this book is literally made for me. Um, oh, I'm glad you felt like that. That wellness um, chapter was the most controversial and it being really? number one. Yeah, that's where people uh, divided. Some would stay and some would be like, oh, and throw this book across the room. Um, if people are really invested in wellness, I think they saw it as a criticism of... Um, things that can make them feel better, which I am so passionately not against. I'm such a believer in finding things that make you feel like a more contented person, a more calm person, able to be a better friend, a better mother, just have a more joyful experience in life. Uh, The problem I had is the sort of marketing of it and the business of it, and also just the quackery, probably because my best friend's a dietitian, So I just have picked up secondhand her broth about the quackery yeah I think it's really important I just think it's important to realize that it is a billion dollar industry and some of the things I mean I used to I used to do I used to do things that I didn't enjoy I used to drink spirulina spirulina tastes (laughs) like pond water and I just did it because someone on the internet said I should and now I don't drink spirulina and I feel better for not drinking it but you do say also like listen if you enjoy acai bowls or whatever it is go forth but I think it's just important to do what you say and kind of just think a little bit more critically um, about the whole industry totally eat all those things if you enjoy them but something I find quite fascinating is that like a lot of the places now in London um cafes and uh yeah mainly cafes you know the cakes and stuff will be vegan or wheat free and the proportion of the population that have a wheat intolerance or celiac is actually really low um and it's great that they're catered for said best friend who's a dietitian is celiac. So I'm long aware of how limited her options were when we were teenagers, but there definitely seems to be a move towards that because it's like trendy and there's nothing wrong with eating bread. Like it's such a basic food stuff. It should be really uncontroversial. And yet I remember when I was writing that chapter and you kind of podcast landed in my inbox called literally something like why bread is killing us or something. And I was like, it's really not, 
it's really not killing us. There are so many other things that are killing people before bread is. Um, so the demonization of those affordable foodstuffs, like milk, you know, milk's another one. And I say that quite guiltily because I like oat milk and coffee, but, you know, drinking cow's milk should not be radical. It's not radical. It's not weird. It's not gross. Yeah. Yeah. There's been a really interesting kind of, um, movement on social media recently amongst the vegan community and vegan the vegan community specifically kind of against white vegans who don't talk about uh human rights as much as they talk about animal rights and how veganism is so much linked to um privilege if you're white and how like if we don't think intersectionally about it we can be erasing people's culture and their heritage and when you know we have to think about income and all of that kind of thing so um you're vegan aren't you I am vegan yeah I have been for quite a long time and well there's lots of bakeries for you then that's so I mean you know my (laughs) cake options are limitless let me tell you (laughs) Um, we've spoken a bit already about, um, spending time offline, the boundaries that you have with your phone and social media and that kind of thing. How, and we've spoken about how that's, that, that kind of links to your own mental health. Do you find it easy to slip into rest mode? I think my version of rest is being busy, but like in a singular way. So it's not necessarily lying horizontal. It might be um, cleaning out my kitchen cabinets or going through the toy box and separating out the Lego and the Duplo and just all, and the stickle bricks, you know, those endless little bits. Um, Or it might be making a cake, but it's not really cooking. Or it might be color coding my bookshelves. Like it just, for me, rest is just something done with singular focus um and no I find that very easy I can never believe it when people say oh yeah I was a bit bored this weekend because honestly I would happily spend a whole weekend I'm really nerdy I would happily spend a whole weekend reorganizing things um you know putting together book packages for friends that I think they might want to read playing around with my clothes clearing out my daughter's wardrobe and you know thinking which godchild I can lend that to. Just, you know, like really simple stuff like that. Um, I find it very easy to do. I think I could probably retire and do that. Pandora, I have quite a niche quick fire round for you if you are keen. Absolutely. Okay, let's go. Quick fire with Pandora. Breakfast, lunch or dinner? <gasps> this isn't very quick, is it? Oh, uh, dinner. I think dinner is the one meal that I absolutely couldn't miss and it has to be a big one. Flat white coffee or English breakfast tea? Flat white coffee, I'm a bit embarrassed to say. In the city or by the sea? (gasps) I live in the city, but love being by the sea. So by the sea. Fresh flowers or house plants? Gosh, this is difficult. Sophie's choice. Um, Love a houseplant. Got loads of them. Always kill them. Let's go for fresh flowers. Pubs or clubs? Pubs. Gigs or festivals? Oof, gigs. The OC or One Tree Hill? Ooh, the OC. I had a panic attack when Marissa died. I was so upset. It ended there for me, to be honest. (laughs) Me too. I think think they ended themselves with that. Yeah, they did. 
The Simple Life or Keeping Up with the Kardashians? Not hugely into either, but I'm quite riveted by them. Probably got to go with the Kardashians just because it sort of changed the world a bit, didn't it? Juicy Couture tracksuits or Ugg boots? Oh, Juicy Couture. Fake Juicy Couture, as I used to enjoy. Sainsbury sandwiches or pret sandwiches? Happy with either, but pret's pretty great, isn't it? Kate Moss for Topshop or... <laughs> this is so niche. Kate Moss for Topshop or Roberto Cavalli for H&M? <laughs> I mean, I want to say Roberto Cavalli for H&M or Madonna. Like, wow. Uh, but Kate Moss for Topshop. Iconic. I've still got dresses from that collection. Yeah, it was iconic. Cocktails or crisps? Oof. Crisps. Zoom calls or phone calls? Phone calls. Instagram or Twitter? Twitter. Routine or spontaneity? Oh, I think you need a bit of both, but I'm probably routine. And finally, early night or night owl? I'm naturally a night owl, but I crave an early night, so let's go early night. Not very good at quick fires. <laughs> I enjoyed that a lot. That was quick fire with Pandora. Let us start rounding up with our final questions. When you are suffering a lockdown-induced existential crisis, <laughs> what lifts your soul? <laughs> yeah, God, that's so difficult at the moment, aren't they? The existential crises. Um, oh, a hug with my babies. I'm so I'm so lucky to have these little joyful things that don't have a clue what's happening in the world. So a hug with my babies or a bit of cake. Love that. What is your one non-negotiable daily self-care habit? Probably coffee. It's just so, like, that's so boring. There's not anything else I do every single day, I don't think. Like, I love having a bath. I love moisturising. But I don't do those things every day. So... I have to go with a coffee. Like so many Hilo fans, I am really missing, obviously, the show and also the recommendations. Is there a book, film, TV, podcast recommendation that you could share with us? I'm not great on TV in that I would just say what everyone else says, like, it's a sin. Or I just watched a screener of Promising Young Woman, which is the directorial debut from Emerald Fennel or Fennel, not sure, starring Kerry Mulligan. And that completely blew me away. Those would be my recommendations there, which are fairly ubiquitous, I think. Book ones, some of them, I'm just looking at my bookshelf for what's coming out because I'm not entirely sure of the release dates. Oh, this one's come out and I loved this. We Are All Birds of Uganda by Hafsa Zayan, which won the Murky Books Prize last year. That is absolutely wonderful. And that is definitely out now. Awesome. Thank you. That's a great recommendation. I'll be adding that to my list. Um, what is one small thing you would like listeners to try out or think about when they're overthinking and panicking about not getting it right? What impact does that decision have on your life and the lives of the people around you? Because if it's not any kind of impact, then it's not something to be stressing about. I think that's how I'm trying to sort of weigh things up now is, I mean, that's kind of just a slightly long-winded way of saying how much does it really matter? 
very effective answer. Thank you. And final question. What is one thing you hope your future self will have achieved? I think have more conviction. Um, I find it quite hard sometimes to remember who I am in this time of feedback culture, which is obviously like slightly gone into overdrive now I think um so I would say just maybe like I'd love to think that in the future I'll have a really strong idea of who I am that can't waver I don't know if that's realistic but that's what I'd like I absolutely love that answer and I have so enjoyed chatting to you thank you so much Pandora for being so generous with your time and answers and being on the show thank you Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to the episode. If you enjoyed it, please do be sure to share it with a friend or you could leave it a five-star review or perhaps take a little screenshot and share it on your Instagram stories, tagging me at Venetia Lamana and at ATST Podcast. As always, please do hit the show notes for links to my guests and their work. And I'll see you back here next week for a brand new episode. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.